This is the Value Investor Podcast with Tracy Reinick. All things value, all the time. Welcome back, value investors. Okay, so we're finally doing it. We're finally going to start reviewing the intelligent investor. But I wanted to really cover on this episode whether or not you should read this book. Now, some of you might remember that this all came about because I was on the bus here in Chicago and I was noticing that someone was reading a book because most people are just on their phones these days. So it's a little strange to see someone reading a book. And this person was kind of like intently into it. And then we came to a stop and she got up and she closed it. And I was curious, like, what is the book? And then I noticed the cover because I had read this book and it was The Intelligent Investor. And I did have to think like, one, who's reading that book and who's reading it on the bus these days? I don't know if she was a student or she, like she had to read it or something like that. Um, but it got The Intelligent Investor back in my mind. And I have read this book. It's by Benjamin Graham, by the way. And But I read it maybe like 15 years ago, the last time when the new edition came out and I didn't even own it anymore. And so I had to order it from Amazon. It did come a couple weeks ago, but as I've recounted here, I've been kind of reluctant to, to start it, you might say. So we did Money or Your Life because I've read that one. It's smaller. It was easier to read. And then I was kind of, again, dreading reading The Intelligent Investor because if you've never seen it, they now have the paperback version of it. And it's maroon. It's not super exciting on the cover. <laughs> it's like gold letters or gold gold on there with it just says the intelligent investor, the definitive book on value investing, revised edition, Benjamin Graham. And then it does say it has a quote by Warren Buffett, and it says, by far the best book on investing ever written. Warren Buffett. And he gives a preface now to this revised edition. And it also has um, updated a new commentary in there by Jason's wig, who I believe is still at the Wall Street Journal. Um, he works over there. And so they decided to update this version because this is, I believe, the fifth version now um, is the, the latest one you can get this revised edition, but it's the fifth, it's revised of the fourth. So it's like the fifth edition or something. Um, oh, well, I guess it's, no, this is the fourth edition, but it's the revised one. I don't know. It's kind of complicated because the last version by Benjamin Graham came out in 1973. So that's why they decided after the dot-com boom and that bubble that happened that they may, hey, maybe we should go in and revise this book. But Benjamin Graham had already died. So uh, with Warren Buffett's assistance, they hired Jason Zwig to basically update. You still have the old book. And then the, after each chapter, there's like an updated chapter based on what Graham talked about with stock examples that are more recent so um, that we could relate to, you know, recent events versus, um, you know, what Graham was writing about in the 70s. But this book actually originally, the first edition came out in 1949. So it is basically considered to be like the Bible of value investing, basically. It's like the, you know, 
the book. And so they're not wrong when it says on the cover, the definitive book on value investing, that's what it is. Uh, And Warren Buffett talks about in the preface that he first read the book in 1950. So it'd been out a year when he was just 19. So he got it, gobbled it up, you know, was like, it totally, you know, had this huge impact on him. And he goes to talk about how it provides a framework for investors. And while it provides the framework, we all have to supply, and then this is what he calls it, quote, emotional discipline, unquote. But this made me think, like, how many investors hold a stock for one year, three years, five years? Are there any 10 years out there? Have you ever owned one stock buy and held for 10 years. With stocks booming over just this last decade, surely there's someone out there, some of you who've bought some stocks maybe right after the financial crisis or even during it, and you've just been holding it all this time. Or maybe even you bought some before the financial crisis and you held it. I'm thinking of, in particular, Apple shares because the iPhone first launched in 2007. And there were so many Apple fans when that um, item launched. Many people wanted to own the stock. I know many people bought it in 2007, 2008. But then we had the financial crisis. Stocks kind of collapsed. I don't know how many continue to hold, but I'm thinking some of you did out there. So some of you are kind of um, the keys to the intelligent investor and who that is being marketed to. So basically the book is designed to give us tips and insights to become better investors. Uh, There's a reason that many of us can build wealth in something like a 401k plan because those are mostly invested in the major market indexes, like through work, there's like mutual funds. You normally don't do it like individual stocks in there, although I know some people do and you can in your IRA, but in the 401k, it's mostly just the mutual funds of the indexes or, you know, niches, like you can buy the gold mutual funds, stuff like that. Um, And we tend to put money in and then we don't look at it every day. Although I know, because I've talked with several people who have their 401k on an app, like through Fidelity or one of those, and they do look at it every day. That is a no-no in my book. I literally have not looked at my my work 401k in at least a year, maybe two years. I don't even remember the last time because I know what it's invested in and that's there for the long haul. But that takes the emotional part of it out, at least partially out of the trade. But uh, most of us still have issues with investing on our own or in IRAs with that emotional component. So Warren Buffett just kind of lays out in this preface to the book, um, what's, you know, the book is about and that it's going to give us this tips and this framework and we're going to love it like he is and does love it. Um, but like I said, I've been reluctant to read the book because it's 600 pages. It's got this boring cover, <laughs> seems boring, the intelligent investor, like that's kind of boring name, but he made it up in 1949. So he didn't know that he's supposed to put, you know, do something even cooler with it. But, um, Yes. So I've been reluctant and it's very small type. I'm like looking through it right now as I'm talking to you (laughs) and it has a lot of chapters. And so I'm scared. I'm scared to read it. So 
I'm reading it so you don't have to, but this podcast, like I said, is about should you be reading it? So I read the preface. I was feeling pretty good over the weekend reading that. And then um, Jason Zwig has like a note in there too about who was Ben Graham. So that was very interesting. Okay. So Benjamin Graham is considered to be like the father of value investing. He was the mentor to Warren Buffett. And um, because he wrote this book, he's still like out there basically mentoring all of us. So he was born, according to the book, in 1894 in London. So it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around someone that you're reading their book and they were born in 1894. So he was born in London, but when he was one, they moved, his family moved to New York. His dad died when he was only nine. So the family had a large, lot of problems uh, with money because their breadwinner basically was no longer there. So they slid into poverty. His mother, I guess, ran a boarding house and she tried to actually strike it rich in the stock market. So that I found really interesting because this was 1907, like 1905, 06, 07. And you don't really think about the stock market all the way back then, but some things never change, right? Those of us trying to like get like a big win in the stock market um, through trading. So she put apparently uh, money on, she bought stocks on margin And she was wiped out in the stock market crash of 1907. So that's like Benjamin Graham's, uh, you know, in his upbringing is like his family actually losing money in the stock market. So he was brilliant. He went on to win a scholarship to Columbia full ride. And then when he graduated out of Columbia in 1914, he went to Wall Street and he had like several different jobs over on Wall Street. And then in within like five years, he ended up running his own investment firms. But a couple interesting things happened in there. This, again, was also interesting. So for instance, in 1919, when he was trading, he made 250% on a trade in a company that made tires for this new exciting industry called the automobile. Like we just think like, that today is when all the big inventions are being made and all this cool technology. But literally 100 years ago, people were trading on the similar kind of trends of whatever is the hot industry and the newest, greatest thing. There's all these companies being invented and products being made. And so he was in on some of that. He was also, according to the book, a real stickler for the details, always like searching for information, anything that would give him an edge on finding bargains. And you can see that same kind of behavior later with Warren Buffett because he had a habit of ordering annual and quarterly reports from companies Yes, this is before the internet. If you wanted financial information on a company, you couldn't just hop on your computer. You literally had to write to the investor relations department at, say, Pfizer and request an annual report or a quarterly report, and they would send it to you. Now, the annual reports were all fancy. They all were like these colored brochures with all this cool detail in them. Some of the companies even used to send like little like gifts in there. If you were a shareholder, you always got one in the mail. So not that long ago, even in the 90s, 
Um, if you were a shareholder of Starbucks, for instance, when you got their annual report in the mail, they would send you a gift card in there, especially made for shareholders. And it would say like shareholder, like on there. Those are actually kind of collectibles now. <laughs> but that's just a side note. Buffett used to order um, the annual and quarterly reports from all these companies and he had these big stacks of them in his garage. So they had the similar view and Graham certainly had that of, you know, finding out the information. Um, so going on in his career, he was trading and managing money during the Great Depression, during the stock market crash of 1929 to 1932. Member stocks lost about 70% of their value during that time. He did not go under. He was actually there to buy after the bust. And he often bought, you know, super cheap stocks. There's a couple other stories of other great investors who also were buying. They were buying up stocks that were under a dollar, for instance, back then. Um, so Graham made a lot of money then. And then the book, um, Zwig talks about that from 1936 until he retired from his investing job in 1956, so 20 years, his investing house gained 14.7% annually, like his fund, and stocks were up 12.2%. So this is considered over a 20-year run to be one of the best investing uh, performances that are known out there by anybody. So that's why Benjamin Graham gets this big, um, you know, love and he gets a lot of glory because he had this great track record. And then he came out with the intelligent investor while all this was going on in 1949. So let's turn now to some of Graham's ideas because Zweig kind of goes over what some of the ideas are in the book too. And then, um, I'm going to go over just what the introduction is to this book so that you don't have to read it because I'm going to bring it to you. So Graham's ideas are basically pretty simple, as you might expect. And they do kind of you can hear some of the Buffettisms in them when you when you read through these. So the first idea was that a stock is not a ticker. It's an actual business with value or no value, as the case may be. So you might think of Apple. Oh, it's that chart. Um, you know, it's AAPL. That's what it is. But no, it's a company that's generating $257 billion in revenues a year. That is what you own. It's not just a ticker. Number two tick um, idea is that the market swings between optimism and pessimism. The intelligent investor sells to optimists and buys from the pessimists. This seems really easy. It's always, um, and I, you can hear this in several other big well-known investors too, have had this something similar to this rule. And it basically is if someone wants to buy something from you, you give it to them. If they want to sell it to you, you take it. So that is tip number two. Tip number three is the higher price you pay, the lower your return will be. And this is the price of the business, not the share price. So he's not saying, you know, if you buy a $200 stock, your return is going to be low. No, he's saying the higher price you pay for that business, the lower your return will be. That's the value component, right? Okay, tip number four is that you will never be right all the time about a stock. 
That's why you should have a, quote, margin of safety, unquote, which is never overpaying, no matter how cool, cutting edge, hot, you know, exciting, how much momentum it has. You should never overpay. And that is your margin of safety. Um, Tip number five is that all of us have the ability to find financial success and that if you invest with patience and confidence, you can take advantage of even the most hated sectors and bear markets. Okay, and then this is a good one. Good little tip right at the end of that tip is you must develop discipline and courage. <laughs> like Those are two words you normally don't find in investing anytime. Like most people don't talk about that in investing, but it's a big theme throughout the intelligent investor. Your emotions, patience, confidence, discipline, and courage. So those are the basic um, concepts of Graham's ideas to make a good investor. Now, um, the fourth edition of this book uh, basically keeps Graham's ideas intact. So you get his chapters. And then again, we get this extra commentary by Jason Zwig on each chapter with the more recent examples. And this book came out in 2003, the revised edition. So it's now 16 years old. So I am going to be curious because um, I have not read on past the introduction yet how these newer but now older examples um, fit in with what we know now, having lived through the Great Recession and what's happening in the stock market now. And it does make me wonder, because it's been about 16 years since this new revised edition, if they're not going to update it again sometime soon. But so far, no. So you have to buy this one. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I only read the introduction, like I said, and we're going to jump right into it. Now, again, I was dreading reading this, but I do have to reveal that after I read the introduction, I was super psyched. I wanted to like start investing again, like right away. I was like looking at my portfolios. I was looking at some stocks on my short list, like what I wanted to buy. Some of the ones that uh, stocks that I was like scared to buy because everyone is running away. I was getting some confidence that no, my analysis is correct and that these are undervalued stocks but I have to have more patience with them and wait for the turnaround. So all I can say is in the question to this podcast, should you read this book? Already my answer is yes, because I have read this book, but it was, again, many years ago. So I thought, eh, why do I need to read it again? Eh, it's too long and it's boring and it's this, but no, it's uh, excellent right out the gate, even in the introduction. And this introduction is from 1973, remember? <laughs> so that didn't matter because um, it gives some very interesting uh, tips and guidance in there. Okay, so let's jump right into why that is and why I was super psyched as I was reading this. Okay, so um, he is going to give, he talks about what he's going to do because it's it. the introduction is titled What This Book Expects to Accomplish. So this is fitting for this podcast, right? So the first thing is it's going to provide guidance in the adoption and execution of an investment policy. Much will be devoted to the historical patterns of financial markets, he says. And again, this is from the 1970s. Um, but the guidance is what we're all here for. We all want it and um, we're desperate for it, basically. So I'm psyched about that. Okay, the second thing is that the book focuses on investors and not speculators. And then he says this. 
quote, there are no, no sure things, wait, there are no sure and easy paths to riches on Wall Street or anywhere else. So he basically is saying, we're not here to do day trading. We're not here to be, you know, a quick in and quick out. This is for investing. You're buying these companies to own them. Okay. Then he talks about um, in his own 50-year experience as an investor, not a single person has ever, quote, consistently or lastingly, unquote, made money by simply, quote, following the market, unquote. So he doesn't buy into all of that. Like, what's the market doing today? Is it up? Is it down? Are the bears in charge? Is it bullish? All of that. He says to him, that is not the way um, you should be executing your investment policy, basically your portfolio. Okay. Then he goes on to talk about um, what it takes to be successful in investing. And he says, it has long been thought that the art of successful investing lies first in the choice of industry that is likely to grow the most in the future and then identifying the most promising companies. So in 1973, he gave an example of the computer industry and IBM because that was the flagship company in that industry at that time. And in the 60s, you had the space program. The computer industry was huge in the space program. It got a ton of money. There was a ton of R&D research. So computers started, you know, to really explode, not so much as a personal use, but in business use and government use. So that was the hot industry. And so um, he said that's where you would probably look, right? But in the 1949 edition, the very first edition of this book, he talked back then about something called air transport stocks. That's what they were called in 1949. We know them now as the airline stocks, but those were exploding in 1949. That was the hot industry. There were a ton of airline starting up because it was that was the the in industry that was the new thing and there was huge volume growth in air traffic um, you had the the um, coming of the jet age and then it was it also meant there was overcapacity <laughs> there was too much um, too many airlines too many routes nobody could make any money there was no profit and then he talks about how by 1970 the airlines as a group as an industry industry had losses of 200 million dollars for shareholders so you would have thought in 1949 hey this is the hot industry this is what I need to get into and it turns out those stocks might not have been the best place to be. And he says those stocks had bigger declines when there was the, a big stock market downturn in 1969 and 1970 than the rest of the market. So he says one of the lessons is obvious prospects for physical growth do not always translate into profits and a good stock for investors in those companies. One obvious example of that from the current time frame is Tesla. Um, ticker is TSLA, if you don't already know it. And for years, all I've heard is like, oh, the prospects, the prospects, the growth, electric cars, it'll happen. And Tesla is producing these cars now. But still, the profits aren't there. So some of these companies in these new emerging technologies, a lot of investors get sucked into them on the hopes and the dreams that that technology is going to be this big game changer. And obviously, in airlines, you know, 
in flight, that was a game changer, but it doesn't, again, always translate to um, winning investments for you and I, for the regular shareholders. And then another example, I know many of you are thinking about this too, is what about Amazon? I always get, this is always thrown out whenever um, you talk about like the emerging companies or technologies and that, oh, of course, Amazon was a winner in that, but that stock actually went nowhere for years after the dot-com bust and up until they had the AWS and that started earning revenues with the higher margins, they were not profitable either. So um, I don't think Benjamin Graham would, you know, say that one company that is like not in this model would disprove his belief that um, the high growth areas are always the way to go. So just keep that in mind. Then he goes on to talk about what our biggest problem is as investors. And it really is ourselves because I know many of you have thrown in a towel and I have too on a stock after maybe a month, maybe it's three months, maybe six months later, you're like, man, this is still going nowhere. The rest of the market is up, you know, 20%. I'm still flat or maybe even down 10% nah, I got to get out of this. So we tend to doubt ourselves or doubt why we got in in the first place. We start to look around thinking maybe something else is better and we don't give it the time. So um, that is ourselves basically sabotaging our own investing. And I know some of you, I even got tweets on this recently because with um, Chipotle, they had the big sell-off, remember, off of their highs on the uh, food scares and the PR issues with that. It went down to those lows. Now, I know many people, because you tweeted at me, you were buying at those lows. Yay, hooray, you were getting in down there. But it didn't turn around right away. It it took like a couple of months. Then it sank a little bit more. and. After that big collapse, you're all like thinking, oh, maybe it still has another, you know, I don't even know, 10 or 20%, maybe even more to go down. Eh, I'm going to get out of this. So people did tweet at me recently because, of course, it's rebounded and is back to new highs, right? And people said, I bought it at the bottoms or near the bottoms, but I did not hold on. And so that's what he's talking about, about how we basically, we are the problem (laughs) because we throw in the towel. So another key thing he also does talk about is um, when a lot of buyers of stocks, like they did in Chipotle, um, especially if you owned throughout that whole drop, you took like this huge loss, right, down from those highs, is that you tend to think and make your decisions based on the losses, like where, how far down the stock has gone and what you're losing in there, even though you haven't sold it yet, rather than um, stopping to ask yourself, how much am I actually paying for this company? So a lot of investors tend to look for things that stocks that have sold off big because they think, oh, this is a deal here, instead of actually asking the opposite question, how much am I paying for this? How much am I paying for this business? Um, So he ends in, in this intro chapter by saying that when he started in Wall Street in 1914, remember, just right out of college, 
He had no idea that in two months, two months later, World War I would break out. And that's true of all of us. We have no idea of what's going to happen next week, next month, in the coming years. And he talks about, because this is in the 70s now, that he had no idea in 1914 what the next 50 years of investing were, were going to bring. And there he was in the 1970s with the U.S. now the richest nation in the world and leading an innovation. They had just landed a man on the moon, for goodness sakes, the very first country to do so. And so he may be, he's saying he would not have seen or foreseen possibly any of this in 1914 because the U.S. was not the richest country in the world in 1914 never the you know and for sure nobody was going to the moon in 1914 either so um what we know now is that the next 50 years um may be who knows nobody knows and um the greatest bull market of the last 100 years was still to await him after this 1970s market too. And he did not know, nobody knew that you were going to get, you know, 18 years of fantastic returns that would culminate in an internet bubble and bust and you would get a recession there. So his advice is um, the future is unknown, but if you follow these certain principles They were sound in 1949. They were sound still in 1973 and this revised edition in 2003. And while there may be new technologies like the airplane and then the computer and now new ones like, you know, um, AI and blockchain and even, you know, cannabis with a whole new industry. That's not really new technology, but a new industry. The analysis remains the same. So let's go over again what some of that analysis is. Um, it's pretty simple. Number one, discipline and patience. Number two, you are buying a business, not a ticker, not a chart, the business. Number three, hot industries aren't always going to be the winners. And number four, how much? That's all. That's just simple. How much? How much are you paying for this? How much? So he also concludes by saying, stocks become less risky the more pessimistic Wall Street is. So right now, if we're looking at that philosophy, that would mean possibly energy, some of the retail groups, those are hated. Some still have good fundamentals and pretty much everybody thinks those are down in the dumps and never recovering. You know, the mall is dead, all this stuff, Amazon forever. So um, that's some of his advice too. And so now I want to apply it to a couple of stocks. Uh, I wanted to take a look at a few of the retailers just based on the introduction and what he's given us so far is what we're going to be doing in the rest of this book. This is just the introductory chapter, um, but it's already, like I said, it already made me psyched to go out there and look at my stocks and like what other stocks are out there. And so I did take a look for you. So I wanted to look at the retailers. And so I have two names here that are kind of under this philosophy now. So the first one is Boot Barn. Ticker is B-O-O-T. Now, they're reporting on the day I'm recording this podcast, so 
I don't know what they're going to do. Maybe it's going to be awful, but I don't think so. I actually think this is going to be a real good quarter for them once again, because their last quarter, which was fiscal fourth quarter for them, was super good. So what Boot Barn does, yes, it has this funny name, Boot Barn. I know everybody makes fun of it, but I, if you own the stock, you're not you're not laughing. You're like loving it because they do sell boots and they're a Western lifestyle company um, with a ton of stores in 33 states, actually 240 stores. And some of their business is actually predicated on how good like the rodeo season is and things like that. So, but these, you know, those Western cowboy boots are not cheap and they have a ton of brands and last quarter for their fiscal fourth quarter, same store sales were up 8.7%. That's among the best in the retail industry. And um, well, that's and then their stores, the actual brick and mortar were up 9.8. So again, I've said many times the whole, oh, the brick and mortar is dead and everyone's ordering online thing is not true. These stores are killing it. And their e-commerce was up 3.3 as well. So they do have the e-commerce component they did give guidance last quarter, which we're going to find out if they were right or maybe even conservative, because they expect same-store sales this year, this fiscal year, 5%. They did do full comps last year of 10%. That is super hot for retail. And this would be two-year comps of 15%. Nobody's doing that. So that's why I like Boot Barn. Now, how cheap are they? The stock has soared. They used to be much cheaper, but they're still not bad here because this is the question, right? How much? How much am I paying for these earnings and these same store sales? So their PE is 21. So that is above like a normal value valuation. Price to book though isn't too bad. It's at 3.5 and price to sales a little above the value area at 1.2. But like I said, they're killing it. So you are getting growth here and um, you should be looking at it on any kind of pullback and we'll see what they actually report here. But I am expecting another good quarter because the consumer is still... Uh, you know, spending, still doing well. So if they did well prior quarter, I'm expecting another one here. Okay, another stock, this one does have all the value valuations. Also on the retail side is PVH. Ticker is PVH. They are the big um, maker wholesale and uh, they have the big brands, Calvin Klein, Tommy Hilfiger. They're big in China. So that's why a lot of people have been nervous about this one, not just production in China, but those brands are big selling in China. So if the Chinese consumer is slowing down, PVH could have issues. Similarly, in Europe, they could have issues. So the street has really run away from the stock. Year to date, it's down 4% only, but it was up a couple months ago. Stock came way down. One year, it's down, um, just uh, getting killed, down 42%. But that's why it's super cheap. PE is 8.7 right here. Price to book is just 1.2. Price to sales is 0.7. And even though you have all that cheapness, it is growing earnings here, and the peg is just 0.7. So this has a lot of the classic value fundamentals. You get a little bit of dividend. It's just 0.2%. You're not really buying it for that. But PVH is being thrown out with the bathwater. So you have to ask, um, again, like, how much? How much am I paying for this? And on a fundamental basis... This one is cheap. This one hasn't reported yet. PVH won't report until September. 
Uh, we might get, I believe we're going to get G3 apparel before them. So that might give some views on, or they might go a little bit after actually. PVH might come before. Um, but those two are competitors and partners in some cases on some lines because G3 apparel, which I do own in my own portfolio, makes um, Tommy Hilfiger some of their items like dresses and some other things. But uh, yeah, retail, one area to look at. Again, energy was another one. Nothing is hated more than energy, I feel, right now. Um, everybody just thinks that's gone, um, you know, with no hope. So those are just two areas to look at. And then um, I mentioned a couple other tickers here that... I just talked about, but um, you might want to, you know, keep your eye on and keep in mind when you are buying these rules that he's laying out for us here. So we talked about Amazon, AMZN. I do own that one in my own personal portfolio and Warren Buffett's managers bought it for Berkshire Hathaway. So I'm still waiting to find out what the value actually is in that because they added it um, earlier in the year. The shares had had declined some when they added, but um, I want to know what they're wondering. And if they're asking the Benjamin Graham question, how much on that one? Um, but some of these others, Apple, of course, um, Warren Buffett owns and he loves it. AAPL is the ticker with that one. There's Tesla, um, TSLA. It's never been a value stock because they're still not making any money. Um, but Apple, I did take a look. How cheap is it now? Like, what if I wanted to buy it now? How much? How much am I paying for the earnings now? And the PE is not so cheap. It used to trade even under 10. It used to be like nine times, 10 times, even like 12 times, not that long ago. And now it's at 18 times. That's pretty pricey um, for this company because it's only growing revenues expected to grow only 1% year over year here. Um, price to book, 9.1. Price to sales, 3.8. You are getting a dividend yield with them now. And they are doing the share buybacks. But um, yeah, the growth has really slowed and it's not that cheap. So I'm not a big fan uh, and I do not own it in my own portfolio. But if you were asking the how much question back in the day when it was 10 times, then the answer might be different. So keep some of Graham's concepts in mind again when you are looking to add to your own portfolio or if you're looking to sell something from your own portfolio. Ask yourself, why am I selling? And Has anything changed at the company that um, is different from when I bought? Or is it just me? Am I chickening out? Am I <laughs> getting like, um, you know, upset that I've owned it for three months and it's gone down or it's, you know, flat compared to the rest of the market? So ask yourself all these questions and go out and get the intelligent investor. And because that was just the introduction that I went over today, and with some examples, I didn't even read Zweig's, um, you know, the he also has like an update to it too. I didn't even get to that because Benjamin Graham's own introduction really kind of stands out and stands the test of time. We can all relate to all, even the examples he was giving, even though some of them are now 50 years old. So that's okay. But I will have these new revised chapters in there if I want something slightly more up to date. So that is all good. And coming up on 
on many more of the episodes of the Value Investor Podcast. I'm going to then dive into the chapters. I'm not as reluctant anymore. Um, I'm going to take it slow because it is 600 pages. So it's still a little daunting to look at it. I'm like holding it right now going, oh boy, like it, it was big in my in my bag that I brought to work today. Um, but I am, like I said, super excited now to get more guidance. And I really think that reading this book will help you get into a mindset that you might have gotten out of. And I don't know, maybe Warren Buffett is, you know, maybe he delivered a copy of the books to his two managers after they bought Amazon. I don't know. Um, but like I said, it is a um, super fun book so far, and I will be reading it here by the pool on my summer breaks. So you should too. Again, it's called The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham. You can get it on Amazon, of course, and at most bookstores, they do carry it. It is the revised edition, so make sure you get that one with the update by Jason Zweig and the preface by Warren Buffett. And again, those tickers, um, Amazon, AMZN, Tesla, TSLA. We had Apple, AAPL. We had Boot Barn waiting for that report. I will be listening in maybe on that conference call even. B-O-O-T, that's easy. And then PVH is easy too because it's just PVH. But be sure to subscribe so that you can get all the other episodes on the intelligent investor if you don't want to read it i'm going to be covering some tips and tidbits from it as we go along here so be sure to get all the episodes you can get us on spotify you can also get us on apple podcast and we are on soundcloud with a two-for-one deal over there you'll get the market edge and you'll get the value investor podcast but be sure to get us somewhere and i'll see you again next week with some more stacks This material is being provided for informational purposes only, and nothing herein constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. Do not act or rely upon the information and advice given in this podcast without seeking the services of competent and professional legal, tax, or accounting counsel. Publication and distribution of this podcast is not intended to create, and the information contained herein does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. No recommendation or advice is being given as to whether any investment or strategy is suitable for a particular investor. It should not be assumed that any investments in securities, companies, sectors, or markets identified and described were or will be profitable. All information is current as of the date herein and is subject to change without notice. Any views or opinions expressed may not reflect those of Zach's investment research as a whole.